All right, guys. Hey, turn to the person next to you, and I want you to tell them what your favorite superhero movie is. Favorite superhero movie. Man, that was that was kind of quiet. You guys must hate superhero movies. <laughs> Yikes. Uh, does Godzilla versus King Kong count? I don't think those are superheroes. Those are monsters. That's a monster fight flick. That's such a that's such a weird that's such a weird premise for a movie. Two monsters fighting each other. Hey, but hey guys, listen, you guys know uh, superhero movies to me are like one of the most interesting things in our culture um, because the plot line really of every superhero movie, if you think about it, is essentially the same. Like sure, some of them have their own kind of twists and turns or their own takes on things that are happening in life, uh, but you know, they all end in a similar place. Um, and you know, even though that's the case, we as a culture love superhero movies. We love watching a story of someone who represents the good guy coming into a situation and smashing the bad guys. Like we just, that gets us going. And what we really don't like is when the movie doesn't show us that the way that we want it. Whenever we build up an expectation for the hero to do a certain thing or to defeat the enemy in a certain way and they don't meet it. Whenever the movie ends on a cliffhanger uh, or they, you know, it just doesn't go the way that you think it is, it makes you really, really frustrated. It makes people really frustrated with the film. So they go online, they leave bad reviews, they stir up all this controversy uh, about it. And why is that? Because we have an expectation for our superhero movies. And when that doesn't get met, it makes us very, very mad. Sometimes mad enough to rage online about it with our friends. Uh, disappointment, it evokes within us a sense of anger or a sense of sadness within us when our expectations are not met. Now, the reason we start here is this, guys, is we are in this series called Tale of Two Kings, and in this series, we are challenging the way that we view Jesus, the way that we view people around us, the way that we view power and authority um, that is above us, the way that we view our own power and authority and the, the respective positions and things like that that we hold, um, and we are asking ourselves a really, really important question through this series, is do I believe in the Jesus of the Bible, or have I recreated Jesus in my mind based off my social location and my cultural expectations, guys? Last week, we looked at the story of David and Saul, and we learned that Saul checked all the boxes on the outside, and that he was loved by mankind, but he did not check any of the boxes on the inside uh, like David did. David was not the likely choice to be king, if you just looked at him from the outside. But he is ultimately the one that God chose to become king. And David's kingship was a precursor. It was a foreshadow, something for us to look at as a foreshadow of the ultimate king, Jesus. So tonight, we're going to look at two other kings. The first king is Jesus himself. And then we're going to look at the kind of false expectations that kings were expected to fill, that the Israelites thought, man, if someone's going to be a king, they have to fit all of these boxes. Otherwise, they're not the king. So pay close, close attention tonight, guys. I think you're going to notice parallels between the story of David and Saul and what we're going to learn tonight, even though they occur almost a thousand years apart from each other. And the reasons why I think this is important is this. 
Because this is deeper than just you learning about the Bible. This is deeper than just you learning some cool historical facts tonight. This is deeper than all of that. It's because in life, when we have unmet expectations, it always leads to disappointment. It always leads to frustration. And when we open the Bible, especially, especially the Gospels, our expectations about Jesus are going to be challenged. That is just what the Holy Spirit does. The Holy Spirit loves you enough to meet you wherever you are in life, but he loves you even more not to leave you there, but to continue to push you and challenge you into new and deeper levels of faith. Because I think the thing is, is guys, we all want Jesus to be a superhero like in the movies where Jesus comes in and he just smashes the bad guy. But that's not always the way that Jesus rules and reigns as king. So maybe tonight we have to reframe our expectations because ultimately they are not good ones. They are expectations that we have dreamed up and that we have placed on the text. And I think that if we place our confidence in the one true king who is Jesus, it will lead to peace in our lives and peace that surpasses all understanding. So before we get any further, let's pray. Let's ask God to help us. Lord, we believe that you are king. Lord, we believe that you are Lord over our life. And that if you are Lord over our life, Lord, that means that you are Lord over the tough situations that some of us find ourselves in. God, that some of us came into this place carrying heavy burdens, heavy hearts. We came into this place carrying heavy, heavy disappointment. Lord, maybe there are those around us who are suffering. Maybe we ourselves are suffering. But Lord, we trust that you are Lord in those situations. God, that even in the valley that you're there. Lord, there are some of us in here, God, who are just practicing a quiet faithfulness. And it feels hard. They feel like we haven't heard from you in a while. But Lord, for you to be king means that you see us, even when no one else does. You see the quiet faithfulness. You see us practicing giving the fruit of the Spirit. Lord, there are some of us who are anxious about the future. Lord, whatever that looks like, future of our own lives, maybe our living situation, our career, Lord, maybe some of us are just nervous about how we're going to eat our next few meals. Jesus, for you to be king means you're king even in that, that your kingdom is now and it stretches into the future. Lord, tonight what we want to do is we just want to open our hearts and our minds to grow in obedience to you. We want to live in the kingdom the way that you designed it to be lived in. God, that's the cry of our heart. So Lord, we give you permission to change us, to challenge us in this place tonight. Lord, I pray as we look at this story that you've preserved for thousands of years, God, I believe you have something powerful to speak to every one of us tonight. So God, right now, would you just soften our hearts and prepare us for what you might have? Lord, I pray that you would speak through me, that I would step out of the way and that you would step in. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.
All right, I want you guys to open to Matthew chapter 11. Matthew chapter 11. Flip or tap your way over there. If you don't have your copy of God's Word, you can always follow along on the two screens beside me. You guys that are watching online, um, the scriptures will be available for you guys as well. Um, welcome also everyone who's joining us online tonight. So uh, tonight we're going to talk about something that we usually don't talk about in church that much, but that's unfortunate because it is extremely important for us understanding the tension of what's going on in the New Testament, especially the tension of what um, we are going to read tonight. So the Old Testament, you guys know, ends with the book of Malachi, prophesying that the one true king is going to return to rescue Israel. And last week we talked about David. David was one of the first kings. So after David takes over Israel, he's king for a while. And then after that, it gradually goes into a spiral of downward um, just terribleness. We'll just put it that way. It gets worse and worse and worse and worse to where eventually Israel is in complete disarray. And then the kingdom gets ripped in two in a civil war. And then it ultimately ends with both nations being dragged off by the global superpower, if you will, at the time, Babylon. So they're in captivity in Babylon for a while, and eventually they are let go. Some of them decide to go back to Israel. Some of them stay in the land that they've been captive for a while. And I know that's very, very hard for us to get our minds around. So tonight I'm really asking you guys to use a lot of imagination, because I know for me, I've lived in America my entire life. And for as long as I can remember, and for as long as my parents can remember, and as long as my grandparents can remember, and as long as my great-grandparents could remember when they were still here, America has been the biggest, bad country on the block, and nobody has ever uh, been able to question that in any of our lifetimes. So they even trying to wrap my mind around, man, how could another country come in and like drag us off in the captivity? Like, try to imagine with me for a second that Canada would do that. I know it's ridiculous, but um, like that's kind of what it would be like. So the Old Testament ends with Malachi prophesying, "Hey, the one true King is coming." And he's going to come and he is going to restore Israel. And he's going to restore our ability to worship God the way that our ancestors worshiped him. Even though we have been captive for hundreds and hundreds of years, it is going to happen. So that's how the Old Testament ends. And then it picks up again 400 years later with a story about a guy named John the Baptist. Now, even though that there is a silent period between the Old and New Testament, history did not stop turning. History continued to happen, and the Israelites continued to have their own problems. They were waiting for this king, and there was many guys who rose up and tried to fill that role. In fact, one of the most famous ones is this guy named Judah the Hammer, or maybe you might have heard of him in your history classes called this guy named Judas Maccabees. Judas led this three-year guerrilla war uh, against, the, against the, the nation that was holding them captive. And he actually like somewhat freed Israel temporarily. And then uh, he ultimately um, was killed in, in battle, and then they were taken back into captivity again. And then later, other smaller like revolutionary leaders were inspired uh, by this guy. Um, and they all tried to rise up and take over Israel by force. They all tried to get a bunch of guys together and let's go in, let's fight you know, uh, sword and shield. And they built this expectation into the Israelite society. This is where I'm going with all this. They built this expectation into the Israelite society that the kingdom of God was going to be restored through violence and through force. That this is the way that it's always been. 
and eventually one king is going to come and he's going to be strong enough and he's going to amass a big enough force that we're finally going to be able to kick out our oppressors and we're finally going to be free. With that in mind, let's pick up the story in Matthew chapter 11. Verse 1 says this. It says, After Jesus had finished instructing his 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in the towns of Galilee. Verse 2. When John, who was in prison heard about the deeds of the Messiah, he sent some of the disciples to ask him, are you the one who is to come, or should we expect someone else? Now, the John that Matthew's talking about here is John the Baptist. He's the first one to come on the scene and begin telling people, hey, the king that we have been waiting for has arrived. His name is Jesus, and him preaching about Jesus has landed him in prison. So imagine you are John the Baptist. You have answered the call about preaching the message that King Jesus is here. Jesus shows up, but he is not what you have expected him to be. He's not trying to start a violent revolution. He's not trying to take over the kingdom by force. And you're still kind of doing your thing because you believe, hey, you know what? Jesus is eventually going to do this. But guess what? Now preaching about Jesus has landed you in jail and you're about to be executed for this. John's about to be beheaded for preaching the message of Jesus, and he's waiting for Jesus to kick off this military campaign. Maybe he's thinking, hey, I'll be set free from this. They'll break down the prison, and I'll be able to escape. And you're John, and you're so discouraged because you are days away from being killed. So you send your disciples to ask Jesus essentially, hey, are you really the Messiah? Are you just another one of these fakes? Are you just another one of these guys that has a few minutes of success and they're ultimately killed by the Romans? John the Baptist, the guy who preached for the first time that Jesus was coming, had doubts about who Jesus was. Think about that. And he got frustrated because his expectations for who Jesus was and what Jesus was going to do weren't met. Let's keep going in verse 4. Jesus replied, go back and report to John. So he's telling the disciples, his disciples, here's what I want you to do. Go back and report to John what you hear and see. The blind receive sight. The lame walk. Those who have leprosy are cleansed. The deaf hear. The dead are raised. And the good news is proclaimed to the poor. Blessed is anyone who does not stumble on account of me. And as John's disciples were leaving, Jesus began to speak to the crowd about John. What did you go into the wilderness to see? A reed swayed by the wind? If not, what did you go out to see? A man dressed in fine clothes? No, those who wear fine clothes are in king's palaces. Then what did you go out to see? A prophet. Yes, I tell you, more than a prophet. All right, what exactly did we just read right there? Jesus is saying, look, John isn't exactly who you thought he was going to be either. He doesn't have fancy clothes. He doesn't have a huge palace like how every other king that lived in the time would. The guy who would announce the new king would live in the palace and things like that. He's saying, hey, John's not like that. John doesn't meet the cultural expectation either. But John, he also wasn't a pushover. That's what he's getting at with the whole, did you go out and see a reed that was swayed and pushed by the wind? John was not swayed and pushed by public opinion. In fact, he continued his mission even to the point that he was jailed for it. 
If anything, John was the wind who was blowing the reeds, shaking up the normal. And that's why Jesus finishes by saying, he is the prophet that you have been waiting for, that we've been waiting for for 400 years, but he is more than a prophet. He is the first person to announce that the king is coming. And if he came in a way that you didn't expect him to, then this kingdom that's coming, this king that's coming is going to come in a way that you don't expect either. Let's keep going in verse 10. It says, this is the one whom it was written to you. I will send my messenger ahead of you who will prepare your way before you. He's quoting from Malachi. And he goes on, he says, truly, I tell you, those Born of women, there has not risen anyone greater than John the Baptist, yet whoever is the least in the kingdom of heaven is greater than he. From the days of John the Baptist until now, the kingdom of heaven has been subjected to violence, and violent people have been raiding it. Let's pause for a second. I want us to focus in on verse 12. This verse uh, should be understood that in recent history, when Jesus is talking, people have tried to advance their cause through violence. And it hasn't worked. Time after time, people have tried to rise up and take the kingdom and free the Israelites through violence. Jesus says that God's kingdom was always supposed to be advanced, not through violence, but through love and through hospitality and through generosity. But the problem is, is ever since Saul showed up as king like we read last week, no one has tried to employ that strategy. Everyone has tried to employ the ways of the world, force, oppression, those things. Let's keep going in verse 13. For all the prophets in the law prophesied until John. And if you were willing to accept him, he is the Elijah who has come. So Elijah, if you guys don't know, in Old Testament, really big deal, um, really popular prophet. And he's saying, hey, this is, this is the Elijah that you guys have been waiting for. It goes on, whoever has ears to hear, let them hear. To what can I compare this generation? They are like children sitting in the marketplace calling out to others. We played the pipe for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge. That's a really weird word. I don't know anybody that uses the word dirge, but listen, a dirge is essentially like a song that you would play at a funeral. He says, we sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. Again, this seems really, really weird to us, but listen, Jesus is trying to say is we've been trying to show you the way the true way that the kingdom is coming, but you're not listening, you're not responding. That's what he's getting at when he says, we played the pipe for you and you didn't dance. You heard the music, but you didn't respond. That's what he's saying when he said, we sang a dirge and you did not mourn. He's saying, hey, we called out, we gave you a signal and you didn't respond. And then I love the way that he ends this teaching. Because for all the verses we've just read, verses 1 through 17, Jesus is trying to get across the point to us, hey, my kingdom is different. It's different than what you know from the world around you. It's different than what you know from the culture around you. It's different than what you know from recent history. I'm a different kind of king, and I'm leading a different kind of kingdom, but you're not responding. It's what Jesus has said so far, and look at the way that he ends this. Verse 18. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he is a demon. Verse 19, the son of man came eating and drinking. They say, here is a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. But wisdom is proved right by her deeds. Look what Jesus is saying. He's saying, my kingdom, it doesn't come at the end of the sword. 
My kingdom comes with a seat at the table. And the sad thing is, is people don't like that. People didn't like that back then. People don't like that today. That's why they call Jesus gluttons and drunkards because they're not fitting his expectations. See, it's easier, guys, to bulldoze down your enemy. It's much easier just to fight your enemy hand-to-hand. It's easier just to push them down. It's easier to shout people down online. It's easier to scream and outrage than it is to welcome someone that you disagree with into your own home. Yet Jesus says this is how the kingdom actually comes about, not through force and through violence, but it comes through hospitality and generosity. And Jesus is saying at his table, everybody is welcome even tax collectors and sinners. Let's do a little backstory on those two terms. See, guys, tax collectors in Jesus' day were like the scum of the earth because what tax collectors were was they were hired by the Roman government to collect taxes. So let's say um, for one year, Rome decided that it's entitled to 30% of whatever it is that you earn. So they would hire these tax collectors to go out and say, hey, just go out and collect 30% of what everybody owned and bring it back to them. But what a tax collector could do is say, hey, you know what, for my troubles, I'm going to take 20%. So whatever you earn, 30% of that is going to go to the Roman government. 20% of what you earn is going to go to me as a service fee. But you see, there was no accountability. So if you were a tax collector, you could just make that number whatever you wanted. 30%, 40%, 50%. There's no accountability. And because of that, it's estimated by scholars that tax collectors were some at some points taxing the Israelite people 90% of what they earned. Nine out of every $10 that they earned, they were having to give to the government. It's estimated that the majority of the Israelites were literally living hand to mouth as a result of this oppression. So it is safe to say the Israelites were not the biggest fans of tax collectors. So maybe even referring to them as the scum of the earth for them is even still putting it a little bit too lightly. Yet Jesus invited even them. Matthew himself, the one who wrote the words that we are reading, was a tax collector before Jesus called him to be a disciple. And that second term, sinners, speculated by some scholars to be first century slang for sex workers or prostitutes. So here's Jesus. This person who is supposed to be this moral and religious leader setting the example for everyone else, a rabbi, someone who literally teaches other people how to follow God's law. And these are the type of people that he's sharing a meal with? These are the people that he's surrounding himself with? See, in the first century, you just didn't share meals with people. Like, it wasn't something that you casually did. It went against every single social norm that they had. It would have been like eating or drinking in the 1950s in a racially segregated restaurant. That is how earth-shaking and how earth-shattering what Jesus is doing. But when Jesus does that, when he says, hey, the Son of Man came eating and drinking, and people are calling me a glutton and a drunkard for hanging out with tax collectors and sex workers, what he's saying is, look, my kingdom is for everyone, even them. 
And there is a seat at my table for everyone, even the ones that society has written off a long time ago. This king welcomes anyone and everyone who would answer the call into his kingdom. No matter what your story is, no matter what your past is, no matter what you've done, guys, Jesus ushers in something that we call the upside-down kingdom. And that's the first thing we're going to take away from tonight's teaching. Jesus ushers in the upside-down kingdom. See, we call it the upside-down kingdom because Jesus sought to do things opposite the way that culture tells us to do things. Jesus wanted to turn selfishness into generosity. He wanted to turn division into unity. He wanted to turn love into hate. He wanted to turn violence into service. And he's saying, I know that this is the way that we've done it for thousands of years, but in my kingdom, we're doing things a new way, guys, because it wasn't just the Israelites that thought that Christ would be like that superhero figure that we talked about who was just going to roll in and smash the Romans just like superheroes smash the bad guys. See, in Roman culture, they use this tactic too. If you were in one of Rome's territories, which Israel was, if you did anything to try to oppose Roman rule, if you did anything to try to interrupt what they were going to do in the world, they would literally roll into your village, bulldoze everything down. They would kill everybody publicly through execution that disagreed with them. They would burn people's homes. They would burn crops. They would do whatever it takes to squash whatever it is that was going on. And then they would walk away after all the resistance had been completely eliminated and go, man, look at us. We have restored peace to this area. So all these people have this expectation that that is what Jesus is going to do. This is the way that Jesus is going to bring peace. But Jesus' version of peace isn't brought through force. It's brought through hospitality. It's brought through kindness. It's brought through generosity. Maybe for us, we need to stop trying to advance our viewpoints through social media wars, through flaming people in comment sections, guys. I'm a firm believer that nobody's mind is changed online. Maybe we need to stop turning our noses up at people who come from different walks of life than us, who have different backgrounds than us, who have different upbringings than us. We need to stop viewing them as those people in our minds. You know what happens when you put someone in one of those boxes? They're like, oh, there's one of those people. That dehumanizes them. That literally is a mental shift in your brain from seeing that person as a human being to seeing them as an enemy. And when you see them as an enemy, you do not treat them the same way that you would another human. Maybe we need to stop looking at the world through this lens where it's like, hey, whatever my tribe, my social group, my way of thinking, my political party must reign supreme so we can beat those other people, so we can get rid of those other people. We've got to start looking at the world the way that Jesus did, that change does not come through violence, that change does not come through force, nor does it come through flaming comment sections. It comes from seeing everyone as human and welcoming any and everyone to the table. Guys, the Son of Man came eating and drinking because the great enemy that Jesus was going to defeat, it wasn't the Pharisees, it wasn't the Romans. It was what Paul called the powers of darkness. That Paul, Jesus, the rest of the authors of the Bible, they saw that behind every human evil that there was a greater evil. 
there was a greater force that was manipulating, tempting, and pulling the strings behind the scenes, that Jesus was the king who was going to finally defeat the evil from the serpent all the way back in Genesis chapter 1. But even in Jesus' defeat of that evil, it was going to be in an upside-down way. It wasn't going to be through a battle. It was going to be through his death on the cross so that every single time that you and I sit down at a table with people in our neighborhoods, people who are different than us, people who disagree with us, that we were saying, Jesus is king. And he defeated the evil that divides us, that brings hatred, that brings racism, oppression, malice, and cruelty. And the fact that I'm sitting down and having this taco night with you is evidence of that. that the powers of darkness have been defeated. Yes, by something as simple as sharing a meal with someone, you are fighting and winning battles over evil. And you are not fighting a battle with guns and tanks because those weapons don't work against this kind of evil. In fact, you're fighting a weapon or you're fighting a battle quite literally with weapons that are more like pizza and chicken strips. And God's people said amen. You know what I'm saying? Like, we can get behind that because what Jesus is saying is, look, because I died on the cross, I can bring people together. You can be united. We can tear down these walls of division if we can just stop looking at each other through these boxes, if we can just abandon this mindset that the way that people are won over is by force, the way that people are won over is by proving how right I am. Guys, it's much easier to do that it's much easier to fight someone online than it is to love them and to invite them into your home. It's much easier to blow up over whatever opinion or whatever controversy it is than it is to have a conversation with a real person face-to-face. I think what Jesus is calling us to is actually harder. It's hard to invite people that you disagree with into your home. In fact, look at the second thing. Jesus' kingdom is inclusive, but it is not uniform. This is very important. Anyone is welcome at Christ's table. Jesus' message was inclusive, meaning that it's anyone and everyone. Yet in today's culture, I think when someone says inclusive, what they really mean is uniform. When something's uniform, it means everyone has to look like me, everyone has to think like me, everyone has to agree with me 100%, or you're not welcome, you're not, you're canceled, you can't come into our club, you can't be a part of our group. That's not Christ's definition of inclusive. Jesus brought people together who would never, ever, ever fit that description of inclusivity. In fact, consider the previous chapter, Matthew chapter 10. That's the first time Matthew lists out the list of the 12 disciples. Um, first, you got Matthew, who we've already mentioned is essentially working for the government to increase the oppression of the Israelites, and people hate him, to put it lightly. They despise tax collectors. And then you've got a guy named Simon. In fact, Matthew calls him Simon the Zealot. Now, what does that mean? The Zealots were a group of like Israelite revolutionaries who believed that, hey, we're going to rise up and we're going to take the kingdom by force. Simon was a part of this. In fact, in history, 
they referred to this group of people as the Sakari. Sakari translated literally means dagger men. So what people like Simon would do is they would go into these big crowds and these marketplaces in their cities, and if there was any Roman guards there, or even people who were just Roman sympathizers, people who were like, you know what, we should stick with the Roman rule. They would literally stab these people between the ribs, and they would slip off into the crowds. We would call something like that today domestic terrorism. And you know what Jesus does? He brings both these guys together at a dinner table. One guy's working for the government, one guy's trying to take down the government, and Jesus says, we're going to sit down and have a meal. That's Jesus' definition of inclusive. It's anyone and everyone can come in and be a part of this table, guys. This is huge. This is groundbreaking for us to understand because, listen, this is bigger than something like Proud Boys versus BLM. This is something that's closer to, like, Navy SEALs versus ISIS terrorists. This is two groups of people who have, like, fought and lost people, who have bled blood over that. You want to talk about bringing together counter opinions. Jesus brought them together. Guys, we have to fight for unity. We have to. But that doesn't mean that we all have to be uniform. That doesn't mean that we all have to think the same way. We all have to act the same way. We all have to dress the same way. All come from one background. It means that we are united in the followership of Christ. That when people who should be divided, people who should never be at the same table are united That is our greatest witness to the community that's around us. That people would look in and they would say, there's no reason those people should be friends. There's no reason those people should be singing the same song to the same God. But that's the power of Jesus' unity. And that's the way that business is conducted when Jesus is king. The last thing. So I think Jesus' kingdom requires no less loyalty. No less loyalty. Maybe the only similarity in the two kings that we looked at tonight, the king that's Jesus and the king that the Israelites had dreamed up that they thought that they wanted, is that neither of them require less loyalty, except maybe Jesus' call for us is an even deeper level of loyalty. Guys, Jesus wants all of you. He wants all of your heart. He wants all of your affection. So my challenge for you tonight is this. This man, swear your allegiance to Jesus. Believe that he is Lord. Believe that he died so that you could be saved, so that you could live. Dedicate your life to follow him. Guys, listen to me. You get one life. Don't waste it scrolling through someone else's. You get one time to be in your 20s. Don't waste it pursuing something frivolous that doesn't matter in the long run, that doesn't matter for eternity. Don't waste your life comparing your life to someone else's. Be obedient to Jesus instead. Don't waste this season of your life trying to compete with your coworkers, trying to draw validation for how well you're doing versus how well they are doing. Look to Jesus for your identity and your value. Don't waste it looking across the aisle. 
don't look back on this time, guys, with regret. Saying, man, I wish I would not have wasted that season in my life, that season that I was single, that season that I was in school, that season when I was just starting out of my job. I wish I would have spent it being hospitable. I wish I would have spent a lot more time having meals with people. Looking at the person sitting across from my table, talking about life, instead of fighting online. Guys, don't spend this season trying to win others over through force, but win them over by inviting them to not only see the love of Jesus in you, but to experience the love of Jesus in you. That's the only way that we make it out of this hole in society that we're in right now. That is the only hope that our church, that our community, that our nation has for the future. It is the only hope that has stood the test of time and will continue to stand the test of time because listen, this is the thing about Jesus' kingdom. It wasn't just something that started 2,000 years ago. It's not just something that is here tonight. It is something that is here now and that it extends now into the future for forever. But we cannot be like those that Jesus was talking about tonight. It says, we played the song, no one danced. We sang a song of mourning and no one cried because they didn't have ears to hear because they were listening to everything else in the world besides the one voice that matters. So that's what I want us to do tonight. I want you guys all just to bow with me. Would you just say, God, would you just show me? God, show me how I, how I can make you Lord of my life. Show me what my next step is. Just ask God, show me, God, how I can be more hospitable. How can I be a more generous person? aside force and I need to take up love.